online at crossculture.church. From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is Crosswalk, a weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of Cross Culture Church. Thank you for joining us. Now here's this week's message from Cross Culture Church. Everybody said amen. Amen. Well, my name is uh, Dan Johnson. It's a privilege to be here with you uh, this morning. It is a great honor uh, to hopefully uh, present the word to you in a way that causes action in your heart, in your life, in your mind. This morning's title is called Gone Fishing. Everybody say Gone Fishing. Now what my intention with this title was that we would be motivated to, to go out and become fishers of men and sharing the gospel with those that are around us. That's the intention behind this message. Although in research, the term gone fishing, I always thought of as being, I'm not here, I'm gone fishing, right? I'm not here where I used to be, I am now fishing. But upon research, it turns out that gone fishing actually means someone that is out of touch with their surroundings. Now the, the, the problem is this. <laughs> I guess if I do my job correctly, two things could happen uh, this morning. One, uh, if you get to the end of this message, you may feel compelled to go share the gospel uh, with those that are around you. The other option, though, is you may feel that Dan is unaware of his surroundings. <laughs> and he's lost all ability to understand. So I'm going to let you decide at the end which one of those are true, okay? If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 4. Actually, we'll start at Luke 5, and we're going we're gonna to work to Luke 5. We're going to start at Luke 4, work our way to Luke 5. We're going to be encountering the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. But before we get there, I want you to understand some context. Everybody say context. We're going to see kind of Jesus' beginning ministry that led up to this moment in which in time he calls his first disciples. But before we get there, I would be remiss to not... Spend this moment in prayer. Anytime I get a chance to teach the Word, I pray a couple things. One, that this would be pure. Two, that this would have no ulterior motivation. And three, it would be fully dependent upon Him. Will you agree with me this morning as we pray? Father, I do. I ask that this Word would come from You for Your people at this time. Your Word is active. It is alive. Your grace is sufficient, Lord. It's beyond my ability to understand, but pray, I pray, God, that I do not depend on my own understanding. I do not depend on my own humor or clever ability. I pray that I depend on you and that your word would go forth to your people for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. We start off in Luke 4. This is where Jesus' ministry is starting. He's launching, right? For such a time, Jesus came, what? To die for us, right? That he may be resurrected to new life. And this is the beginning. This is the start of it. It starts in Luke 4. And what do we see? We see the temptation the devil brings to Jesus. So he's just starting. And we already begin to see the temptation. And, and the devil uh, tempts him in three ways. In one, he says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. In verse 3, Luke 4, 3. He's already tempting him. If you are who you say you are, then do this. 
How many have ever been manipulated? You don't have to shave your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. All right? How many have ever been manipulated? The, the, the devil is trying to use, even Scripture we'll see, to manipulate the Son of God. He says, if you are this, then you will do that. And of course, Jesus responds beautifully, but yet the devil, he doesn't get that idea. He continues, and we see in verse 6, he says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. This is the devil speaking to Jesus, saying, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Temptation number two, right? If you worship me, all of this will be yours, right? How many have ever been promised something by someone and they didn't fulfill it, right? You've experienced the heartbreak of that, right? Then he continues, as Jesus responds with the word of God, he continues in verse 9, he says, and then he took him to Jerusalem and set him in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And interestingly, the same language is used when Jesus is on the cross. If you are who you say you are, come down. Here's the interesting note. Jesus, let me tell you, is not to be manipulated. Are you with me? He is not to be manipulated. And his identity was solely placed as what we're going to see in his purpose, that he did not let the greatest temptation affect him. So we're only a few verses into his ministry and we see that he's tempted. Then he continues and he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, right? He's going back as the hometown kid in Luke 4, 16. Right? He goes to Nazareth, and he's in the temple, and they're having a great service, and he stands up and he reads from Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people in the midst, they're like, hey, this is some good stuff right here. Right? He's just reading Isaiah. But then it came to them. This is just Joseph's son, right? Who is he to say that he can deliver the captives? Who is he, they challenge, who is he to say that he can do this, right? They challenge yet again his identity. And then what they do, check this out, they get so angry with him because what he points to is that, that Jesus did not just come for the Jews, but he also came for the Gentiles. Jesus did, he tells them that even though you are Jews, right? I'm coming for the Gentiles as well. And he points throughout history where God showed favor upon the Gentiles. And they didn't like that, right? Because their identity through salvation was in their ethnicity and not in God. And he corrects them. And they didn't like it so much that if you look in verse 29, he says, they rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Why? So that they could throw him off the cliff. Jesus is 29 verses into his ministry and he's already getting thrown off the cliff, okay? He's already getting thrown off the cliff. He faced temptation and rejection immediately. Immediately. In your bulletin, you'll see some questions that, we, that we're going to look at throughout today's service. I write these down. There's no right or wrong answer to these. These are meant to be reflective they're meant for you to reflect upon the verse and your life and however God may be speaking to you, right? So this may be something that, that you take home with you and contemplate more. 
This may be something that you can write down right now, whatever you see fit. But I do want you to contemplate these questions. How would you respond to the temptation and rejection Jesus faced? Would you have given up? Would you have stopped your ministry before it really even began because of this temptation and because of this rejection? We all know in the world that we live in, we face temptation, amen? We face rejection. How would you respond if you were Jesus, you came down to earth to redeem us, and the people in your hometown want to throw you off a cliff? But we see in verse 30 that that he was able to escape. So what does Jesus' response to this rejection and temptation tell us about him? We're about to see. We're about to see. Because Jesus, after this, he goes to Capernaum. And Capernaum is kind of like his new hometown, his adopted hometown. That's kind of where the ministry is birthed out of. And he goes to Capernaum, and many miracles happen there. Many great things happen there. It's, people were sick. The teaching with authority, they're casting out demons. He healed the sick in verse 4 of 39. They saw him even as the son of God, we see in verse 41, right? They saw him who he was. And what a gift for Capernaum, for Jesus to choose them, to be there in their midst. But then what we see, we see verse 42. Read this with me. It says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. So he leaves the place of comfort. He leaves the place where ministry was going well. He leaves the place that that they saw him for who he was. What a relief after everything he faced before, right? But he leaves it. He goes to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And it says, and would have kept him from leaving them. The people came to him. Jesus is trying to get away. And we see this routinely throughout the the scriptures. Where Jesus is going away and yet people follow him. How annoying would that be? If you've had kids, can we be honest in here, right? You just want some sacred time in the restroom for five minutes. Right? Without somebody knocking on the door, Mom, Dad, can I get help? You're just looking for a desolate place, right? You're looking to get away. I hear some really big amens back there, right? You're just looking to get away. But interestingly enough, Jesus always welcomed them. People were never an inconvenience for him. People were never an inconvenience. Why? Well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. It's a great question. I'm going to show you. So he said, he went to a desolate place. They came to him in verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The people, they wanted him to stay because of the many miracles he was doing, the comfortability. I mean, who wouldn't want Jesus there, right? They wanted him to stay, and they were going to prevent him from leaving because of what they wanted to receive from Jesus. We're going to come back to that. But Jesus points to what? He points to his purpose. And what was his purpose? Isaiah 61, also found in 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Right? He understood his purpose. We see all throughout Jesus' life, everything came back to his purpose. Many times he would say, don't tell anybody who I am. Why? Because he had a purpose to serve. He knew what that purpose was, he knew what that vision is, and it drove everything about him. It consumed him. It told him to leave the comfortability of these people that loved him, that really saw him as he should have been seen, right, in Capernaum, and said, I need to go elsewhere. 
It caused him to leave not just the rejection, not just the, not just the temptation, but also the affirmation. The affirmation, the rejection, and temptation never strayed Jesus from his calling. Never did. Always went back to his purpose. He says, I must preach these, the good news of the kingdom of God as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He went out. So you'll see in Jesus' response, I have a question. The question is, what is God's vision and purpose for your life? I tell you, if you don't, and, and the only way to seek that out is to wait and upon him. I can't tell that to you. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life that you must seek out. You must wait upon him. You must seek him. Not, not the affirmation of man, not the rejection of people, right? Not the temptation. All these things pull at us. All these things try to steal that from us and tell us who we are and who we're not, right? When I was uh, in grade school, um, they said I had a reading comprehension issue, right? Uh, where I would read something and then I would struggle to understand it, right? And then it was a real issue. I'm just going to tell you. And how funny is it now that I am teaching the Word of God, <laughs> right? Now you all are sitting there like, oh boy, maybe he's not teaching the right Word of God, right? Maybe his reading comprehension is getting in the way, all right? Well, I'll let you decide that, all right? But it's funny. We can't put limits on God. We cannot put limits on God. What he can do in our lives, what he can do with our church, what he can do with our family, when we do, we fail to listen. We're listening to the rejection of people, the affirmation of people, and we're not listening to him. So I ask you this question. What is God's vision and purpose for your life? If we don't have clarity there, if we don't have clarity there, then the temptation and all these other things will easily snatch it away. Absolutely. The very next thing Jesus does in the text Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he's writing to proclaim that all Theophilus had heard is true, and he's writing Luke and then Acts to assure him that this is true. Not just what you've experienced or heard, but I am saying this is true. I'm putting my name on, this on these encounters of Jesus. His entire purpose for us then is to read this text and see that Jesus is who he said he was. What he's about to do in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 is to demonstrate the calling of the first disciples. I'm going to argue is one of the greatest things Jesus ever did. Because what continued the work of the kingdom as Jesus was resurrected was his disciples. He chooses to work through men and women. I'm going to say jacked up men and women like me. I'm not going to put you in that light. All right? He chooses to use jacked up men and women, just like Simon, we're going to learn. He chooses to use them to further his kingdom. What an honor this is. What an honor this is to be used by God. And we're going to see just how big of an honor it is as you look at verse 1, chapter 5. It says, on one occasion, so there were other occasions, but on this occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God. They were coming to hear the word of God. They wanted to listen to it, right? It says, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. Very, very active sea for fishing. All right, don't read ahead. Don't read ahead. I'm just trying to help you here, okay? All right, it's an active sea for fishing. All right, so he's there. They're pressing in on him. 
right? And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Washing their nets was a key, key, key element to fishing, right? They would often use like linen-type nets, and they had to be cleaned routinely, all right? And, you know, you, you put stinky stuff in there, or whatever it may be. They're in the ocean. They're trying to clean them to go out. Often fishing during this time was done at night, all right? The type of fishing that they were doing. It was done at night, and they're fishing at night. They're done. It's morning time, all right? They're washing their nets, right? Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put it, put it a little from the land. So, so picture a sea where we put, most of the time we're like this. The speaker's elevated, right? And you guys are, are sitting down there, I guess, right? Well, in those times, oftentimes Jesus was at the, at, at the low, and then he would put himself around where there would be people all around, right? So he's now been pushed about on the boat. The boat's about 27 feet long, 7 feet wide. He's standing on the boat, which, if you want to be honest, is a great amount of balance. How many have ever fallen off a boat? All right, we've got a couple of people that have fallen off a boat. I'm not good with boats. I stick with kayaks, and I still tend to, to fall and get into the water. So he stands or sits, whatever it may be. He's in the boat, and he begins to teach them. But that's not really the emphasis of this story, right? That's not the answer. He sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, whose boat he used, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Put this boat out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He's telling fishermen who do fishermen for a living. They fish for fish for a living. And Jesus is telling him how to do that. How many of you like being told, all right, what, how you should do your job by somebody who has no idea how to do your job, okay? If you're interested, I will give you my phone number. I would be happy to call you and tell you how to do your job, even though I have no clue how to do your job, right? We all get frustrated with that. And Simon responds, look at this, he's like, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. How often does Jesus ask us to do things that just don't make sense? We want them to make sense. We need them to make sense, but they don't. How often does God call somebody else in our lives to something and it just doesn't make sense? We're frustrated with that. Why doesn't this make sense? Could it be that God has something else in store that we just don't know about? What if God is asking us to trust him in a way that doesn't make sense because he's going to teach us something about him and about ourselves? What would that look like? So Simon responds like, look, we've toiled day and night and took nothing. We got nothing. There is no fish out there to be caught. Right? Now, I think some of this uh, response is this, but at your word, I will let down the net. I know this about fishermen. If there's just a glimpse of hope to catch a fish, they're out on the water. All right? How many know some fishermen in your life that you know if there's an opportunity to catch some fish, you're out there? We had the unique privilege. We were in college, and we had the privilege of going to Hawaii uh, uh, something we totally could not afford. It was a God thing, all right? And we're on a boat, and we're trying to catch, I think it was shark or marlin or something like that. They had me stretched in this thing, and I had a pole that was stuck to me, and, you know, it's like big fish, right? 
We are four hours in. I'm not a fisherman. Four hours in. We only paid for four hours. I'm with a buddy of mine who is a fisherman. And the guy says this, after four hours of not catching a thing, you know, there's some fish on the other side over there that we could go catch. But you're going to have to pay for four more hours. So what happens? Like a fish on the hook, he reeled us in like, oh, okay, okay, let's do it. How much money you need? We're just handing him everything. After four hours, we caught nothing. After eight hours, we caught nothing. But the desire to catch something, all right, intrigued us enough that we are willing to take that risk. He says, Master, because he does not see Jesus as Lord. At your word, I will let down the nets. Almost like begrudgingly, right? Almost like, okay, well, I'll let it down if you say so. But remember, he's going to have to go back and clean all these nets again after he doesn't catch anything, right? So he's thinking within himself that this is not going to be worth it. But verse 6 happens. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They were breaking. They were breaking. The nets were absolutely breaking. This does not make sense. He toiled all day, all night, and all he found was nothing. And yet when Jesus says, let's go out to the deep, the nets begin to break. Now there's a problem here. Here's the problem. Watch this. It says they had to to signal to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. What an awful problem to have, right? So they didn't catch anything. They trusted Jesus. They go out, and now their boats are sinking. Think about the children of Israel. They were freed from slavery. They're out in the desert, and what do they say? You brought us here to die, right? Oftentimes, God calls us to do things that that seem to be on this fine rail, this, this fine rail of miracle or disaster. How many can relate to that? This is either going to be a miracle or this is going to be a complete disaster. He often puts us in scenarios where this is going to be a miracle or complete disaster. I remember we were 18. I was 18. We were driving across the country to go to Oregon for college. We had a minivan, 97 Plymouth Grand Voyager, right? We had the largest U-Haul that we could possibly pack on the back of it right? And we're setting out from Indiana. I had never been west of Indianapolis. And here we are driving across the country. This could either be a miracle or a disaster, right? We get to the Bighorn Mountains. Anybody familiar with the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming? It's wet, there's no guardrails, and it's slick. My brakes are smoking, right? I'm from Indiana. I'm from Flatland. I don't know how to do this. And I thought this is either going to be a miracle or this is going to be a disaster. Dan and Kelly are going to go down as martyrs with U-Haul, right? And he got us there. We moved from Oregon to Arkansas. I, I took a job that I had to take. It offered no moving expenses, no pay. I had to jump on it before somebody else did, right? We jumped on it. We took it. It was either going to be a miracle or disaster. And then we left there from Arkansas with our six-month-old Adeline to come to Durham, North Carolina to take a a, a dying or dead church there in Durham, it was either going to be a miracle or it was going to be a disaster. Sometimes that's how God works. And why does he work that way? Because at the end of it, only he gets the glory. Only God doesn't share his glory. He does not share his glory. He doesn't need to. 
He's glorious enough. And when he comes through, what does it cause? It causes no confidence in you as a person. It only elevates your confidence to be in him, right? When you see his hand move, you're like, oh my. You are a great God. Every step of that way that I just described to you, God chose the miracle, thankfully, and not the destruction, (laughs) not the disaster. So in your life, you could be wrestling with that. Is this going to be a miracle or is this going to be a disaster? If you're faced with this, trust me, choose the miracle. It's amazing how God comes through. It is amazing how he comes through in your life. Sometimes we live in that fear. We live in the fear of doubt. We're going to talk about that. That could God do something that he's never done before? It's easy to believe in him to do something he's done before, but to venture into something new, that's incredible. And that's the choice that Simon is left with. As their boats are sinking, what does Peter do? What does Simon Peter do? What I would do is I would say, hey, look, Jesus, this is awesome. How much of a cut do you want? You're right? How much of a cut do you want? I need you for this business because we're going to do really well, right? We're going to do really well. We're going to catch a lot of fish. We could probably like franchise this thing out, right? Jesus and Simon's fishing endeavors, right? And we can catch a lot of fish and make a lot of money. He was a fisherman. He just hit the biggest catch of his life. And instead of doing what they did at that desolate place in Luke 4, where they said, stay with us, stay with us, what does Simon Peter do? He gets on his knees. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me, for I am what? What does he say? I am sinful. I am sinful. He does the exact opposite of what the people previously did, where they wanted him to stay for their own comfort and performance. But sure, if you got to go, I guess so. Simon Peter says, go, for I am not worthy. I want to tell you something. We stand in the presence of God. You're not going to have to fake up the unction to be fearful. You're not going to have to prepare yourself. You're not going to have to say, okay, I'm going before the Father. I need to act reverent. I need to be, you know, honorable. Your soul will do it for you. Your soul is going to do it for you. I think that's one of the reasons they speak so ill of of self-righteousness. Because at one point, you and your sin is going to be exposed in front of the Father. And the one thing that you will do is fall on your knees for your sinful. No one encounters the presence of God and stays the same. He got on his knees. He says, depart from me. I am sinful. He wanted nothing to do with it. He just got the biggest catch. This could be such a good opportunity to capitalize, to make some money, right? And he wanted none of that. None of that mattered to him at that moment. All he saw was his sin. That's all he saw. But I want to tell you, Jesus' response says something about him. Here, all throughout Scripture, and in 2020, it says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful O Lord. Free and all who were with him were astonished at the catch that there had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. But look at what Jesus said. Everybody's amazed at what happened. He says, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. So there's this, there's this double-edged sword, right? We are definitely going to be fearful. 
When we get into the presence of God, we are definitely going to be fearful. Our sin's going to be exposed. And what is God's response? He is not. He does not look down and say, little child, you're right, you're sinful. You're right, you're, you have nothing to offer me, right? He doesn't say that. He says, do not be afraid. To Ezekiel, he says, stand up, right? To Jeremiah, he says, don't be concerned with what the words that you're going to say. Or don't be, don't be worried or don't say that you're too young, right? He, doesn't, he says, even though I know you and your state, stand up. Do not be afraid. What a God is this? What kind of God is this that looks down and sees sinful people and says, I am going to use you in spite of how jacked up, in spite of how sinful, in spite of how much you've turned your back on me, I am going to use you. And remind you, he's talking to Simon, who's going to betray him three times. Three times. And as if he didn't learn then, Paul has to rebuke this guy later when he treats the Gentiles differently than the Jews. When I look at the scriptures, I'm going to be honest, and I think my wife would affirm this, I'm reminded of myself and Peter, often saying and doing things that I later regret, right? Hopefully you can, uh, you, you can relate to that. I know I can. He tells Peter, do not be afraid. All throughout scripture, he encourages them, do not be afraid. There is nothing to be fearful of. The worst that can happen to us is death on this earth. But he says, fear the one who has control after. Right? Fear that one, and that is him. So whether it's affirmation, whether it's rejection, whether it's temptation, does not compare to the glory of God. Does it? It doesn't compare to the glory of God. And he routinely, as we fall on our knees and we, we confess our sin, he says, child, get up. I'm not done with you. You're not damaged goods. You're not labeled no longer usable in my kingdom? If you look through history, God chose to use jacked up, ridiculously sinful people. David is just one of them. Hopefully nobody in here's name's David, okay? All right. <laughs> yes, David. This David, jacked up and sinful as he is. <laughs> I'm kidding, he's never going to talk to me again. He chooses to use them. Chooses to use people like you and me, which is quite incredible. And then the word of God continues. It says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Wow. Notice they did not keep the fish, make a profit, and then go follow Jesus. Right? They didn't do that. Notice they didn't keep their boats or work out a deal and then go. They left everything. The very sustainable thing that made their, their, their economy operate was fishermen. And this was not necessarily an unsuccessful fisherman business. They had two boats. They had partners. That was a good sign. They knew what they were doing. They left everything, everything to follow Jesus. Everything. What this means, it wasn't the miracle. Notice, it wasn't the miracle that caused them to follow Jesus. It was the fact that Jesus says, do not be afraid. The miracle caused him to be fearful and on his knees. God's grace and mercy caused him to get up and follow him. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference there? He's, then he says he left everything, his boat, his nets, everything to follow after Jesus. 
What a moment. We're reminded of Simon Peter all throughout Scripture. It's believed that he died of crucifixion. It's believed that he thought himself to be unworthy to die as his Savior died, and he died upside down. The fisherman that we just read about was so moved by the grace and the compassion of Jesus that he laid his life down for his Savior. It's believed the others were martyred as well. Everybody but John that's mentioned uh, is, is believed to have been martyred for their faith. Their conviction to follow Jesus did not just mean leaving their boats, leaving their financial resources. It meant even their own life. Even their own life. Now we can look at that and say how awesome they are. That's not the point, church. The point is how awesome is God that one would be worthy enough to, to, to give all four. Well, how awesome is God that we would be willing to give up everything that we have and hold dear for Him and His glory. We have brothers and we have sisters all around our globe right now that are literally laying their life down, not so that they can be written in, in some book, not so they could be honored, but that they believe that Jesus is worth it. When Simon Peter put his yes on the table, he meant it. Now we know that Simon Peter is not perfect because we see the story as I, as I told you. He's not called us to perfection. He still, yo, he still chose to use it. What he has called us to is obedience. What does success look like in the kingdom of God? It is not the numbers. It's not the book deals for a pastor. What success look like? Success looks like obedience. That's success. Are you obedient? When we stand before God, we're going to have to give an account. It's not going to be, why weren't I more like Nate? We're not going to have to give account even of all we did. We're going to have to give an account of what he asked us to do. What steps of faith did he ask us to do? So I ask you this question. What step of faith might God be asking you to take? What step of faith might God be asking you to take? What is your everything that he left? What does that look like to you? What could God be doing in you to say, this is what I'm asking you to do? To give it all up. Whatever that looks like, whatever that may be, there is a step of faith all of us go through and that next step of faith, whatever that may be, will be met by a gracious, by a loving God that will most certainly provide. As I conclude, I want to bring you to Moses and the children of Israel. I alluded to this earlier uh, in reference to the children of Israel being brought, into, uh, brought out of slavery. What a miracle that was. Now they're in the desert. It's easy to think, okay, I want to take this step of faith now. But what follows? I want to bring to you a quote in reference to this step of faith. This is by Andrew Murray. This is a quote that has profoundly influenced me. He says this in uh, the 31-day devotional, Waiting Upon God. It says this, When Moses promised them meat, the children of Israel, in the wilderness, they doubted and said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he, can he provide flesh for his people? This is in Psalm 78, 19 through 20. If they had been asked whether God could provide streams in the desert, 
they would have answered yes. Why? Because he had did it before. So as you're contemplating what that step of faith is, let's look at the continuation of this quote. But when the thought came of God doing something new, they limited him. Their expectation could not rise above their experience or their own thoughts of what was possible. Likewise, we may be limiting God by our idea, by what he has promised or is able to do. How are you limiting God? It's easy to look down and say, I'm going to take this big step of faith, God. This is my goal. Yes, all for your glory. This is what I'm going to do. But I want to challenge you even in that thought. Are you limiting God by even that, 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 that expression of what you want to do? Where in your life maybe he wanting to do something new that he's never done before and maybe you're doubting that he can do something new. You've seen him provide. For Kelly and I, we know that God will provide for us to move across country. We've, 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 we've had that instilled in us. For us, it's been a greater step of faith to continue and to believe that God is going to see to it what he called us to. That he's going to complete what he's called us to begin. It's a greater step for us to believe that than it is to be called to Hawaii. Wouldn't we all love to be called to Hawaii, right? It's a greater step sometimes to believe that, that God is going to do what he said he's going to do right here than it is to believe that he's going to call us to go seaside somewhere else. How might we be limiting God? I don't know the future. I certainly don't want to act like I'm a prophet up here and tell you what, what God's going to call you to do. But I do guarantee you this. God is going to call you to something that he's never done before in your life. The reasoning is so that he can be glorified. He can be glorified. That's what it's about. Honoring and glorifying him. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. Cross-Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Online at crossculture.church.